At Motivation, our vision is to create a place where transformation is a positive personal and social experience brought to life through movement and community. Through connectivism, we can share knowledge and make system level changes. Thank you for connecting and joining us today. The Motivation Station. Welcome to the Motivation Station, where we take a deep dive into what it's like living with the condition of Parkinson's disease. We'll get down and dirty with our guests, give you an insight into what their life is actually like. Thank you once again for joining us on the Motivation Station podcast. Today, we've got a twofer, two interviews in one. First, Barry Blostein, and then we'll intermix Mona, just Mona, as you'll find. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the Motivation Station. We've got a cool guest, um, Barry Blostein. Um, we're also going to talk to uh, Mona Elgvin um, here shortly. But for now, we've got Barry, so we're going to spend our time getting to know this fella. Barry, welcome. It's great to get up so early. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, in perfect Barry style, he starts with a joke. So for those who don't know uh, Barry, he's uh, a current resident of Los Angeles, California, and there he is currently a professor. Is that what we would call you? Yeah. He's a professor of screenwriting, um, and he's a veteran of Hollywood, having uh, been a writer for Eddie Murphy and others for many years. I'll let you go ahead and fill in those gaps for us, though, Barry. Can you tell us a little bit about your professional background? I started, I've been a writer for and director for 40 years. Uh, and uh, I started out on Saturday Night Live as a writer, where I met my writing partner, David Sheffield. And together we, we wrote most of Eddie Murphy's material on the show, all his characters, helped create all his characters. And then we wrote a, a number of movies for him, Coming to America, Boomerang, Nutty Professor, Nutty Professor 2, Coming to America. And we wrote movies for other people too. So you haven't done much. And uh, and then and I directed a documentary, a couple of documentaries and a couple of features. And um, then I decided, I got divorced when I was 50. And I decided to change my life. I was getting tired of Hollywood and same time Hollywood was getting tired of me <laughs> and uh and I decided well I, I I like being in front of people performing so I I decided to become a professor and uh which I loved I really loved doing I was teaching and then I was diagnosed with Parkinson's about seven years ago 
So let, let me back up a little bit and let, let our audience know how we've come across this fella here, Barry. He's, uh, he's a part of our um, organization, Motivation Foundation, uh, by the way of being a, a trainee. Uh, Barry has actually been um, learning digits of pi and going through dual tasking and uh, lots of other things that eh, sometimes he doesn't like all that much, but he does because he knows it benefits him, which brings an aspect of comedy to our groups, um, which is kind of why I wanted to introduce you to our podcast here, because our first couple conversations were deep, and of course, we'd like to dig deep with you. You don't get that from me. So. <laughs> but I figured that you would bring a little bit more of a comical factor to our podcast. And we've also got our two main co-hosts, Ned Newhouse and Kim Rotundo. And we're also joined by a special co-host today, Tatiana Mayorga-Wolf. And she's actually joining us from Columbia, believe it. Uh -huh. So special, special things going on here at the Motivation, motivation Station. We have talking difficulties sometimes. So I'm going to turn it over to Tatiana first and, and let her have at Barry with some questions. Tatiana, good to have you here. Thank you. Hi, Barry. Hi. Nice to where, meet you. Where in Colombia are you? I'm in Bogota. Uh, have you I, been? I've been to Leticia. To where? Leticia. Leticia, you were to the Amazon? Yeah. Why'd you go to the Amazon for? I was I was delusional. Uh, <laughs> I was 18, I was 18 years old. I was in, I was an exchange student when I was 14 and, and lived in Peru. And uh, the person that I was an exchange student with family, I'm still friendly with them. And uh, we decided when I was 18 to go through the Amazon for six weeks. Wow, how was that? It was horrible. Oh my God! Why? <laughs> there's nothing. There's nothing romantic about it. Oh uh, no. <laughs> we, were, we were on a we were on a freighter, and uh, it was it was hot, and uh, I got food poisoning, and uh, oh. it was it was not glamorous. And I saw okay. I saw saw animals I thought I'd never see, like snakes, giant snakes, giant snakes, and giant rats, and. Oh, <laughs> well, okay, we uh, we heard what you didn't like, but what did you like about Leticia or the Amazon? What would I like about it? Uh, I didn't like that much about it. That much about it. I was, it was, it was, I, I, first of all, it's so big, it's so wide. Yeah. You feel like you're in the ocean. It's not like Mississippi River where you can see the banks. Right. And, and the, uh, it's a lot of forest. Surrounded yeah. by plants and giant trees. Yeah. Awesome. Well, so you had an experience. I, I enjoyed seeing the animals. I bet it. Well, it was an experience of your youth, and I bet you'll uh, remember it forever. I uh, just oh, I yeah. think you would never do it again. But I, I love the I love the people. So awesome. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you, in what ways do you take care of yourself currently? I exercise. I'm in the best thanks to Parkinson's. I'm in the best shape of my life. Yeah. And when I have dyskinesia, I really lose weight because yeah. the shaping takes off pounds. It's a perfect weight loss program. Yeah. I, Imagine that I'm, for a Saturday night life skidder. One time I told my husband that if anybody wanted to get ripped, just get Parkinson's. Bad yeah. joke, but it's true. What just, do look, I do? just look at I, Paul Clough here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mr. Burby. I exercise every day. 
for an hour. What kind of exercise? A bike, uh, aerobics, play ping pong. I used to do Pilates. Do you have people that you do it with or do you do it by on your own? Because I find that having a, a group of people to support you just kind of keeps you coming and showing up for yourself. Yeah, no, I I, I do a lot with people, with other, with other people. With a group support. Yeah. Yeah, I do boxing. Oh, you also do. Like you go to a gym, to a rock study? I was going to a gym and then uh, COVID happened. Right. And then they, they did the classes on Zoom and I bought a heavy bag, which is in my dining room. I... I I have a gym now in my house, so I still do boxing on on uh, on on Zoom. Gotcha. One of the things I used to go to boxing um, to a gym before COVID, and it was the community we had built was really nice. It was amazing. The people there were amazing, and it it just it was it sucked in a way because everybody just got spread out and we never got back together. Yeah, and it was such a support, good support, you know. Just I haven't heard from many people since then, and it's pretty sad. But I'm glad you kept it going. Do I'm glad guys, you bought the bag. Do you guys find that this virtual setting has replaced some of that, that that you found missing after what what hit us with COVID when we were all separated from our groups? You find that these virtual platforms now that we're so accustomed to after a couple of years of doing this, uh, have they kind of replaced that in, in a way? Yeah, I actually I actually have met. So many awesome people through the online world, uh, which I never, I always thought like, how would it be, how would it be in the day that everybody would be working online and from home or like, would ever anybody go to the stores anymore? And it just has changed so much. It's crazy. Yeah, we're getting and, there. Kim, yeah, Kim's got, Kim's got a really cool story. Um, basically she, she was really involved in, in tennis and then covid and whatnot she started forming groups and then got involved with the online community through facebook and then became a part of our motivation group and now after being a part of a virtual group in california she's brought a lot of those members under her in the train to train part of motivation and she's formed a group that's funded by the kirk gibson foundation and it, it's just a story of how these virtual social networks can really transform to fill in the gaps the the you know certain aspects of life bring up like covid and and different things barry did did covid um throw any wrenches into your life yeah i i was on on sabbatical from school i was where you get six months off and uh so my plans of traveling were were were, were uh, eliminated i i found i adjusted easily to covid was i because I, I figured I had Parkinson's. What's COVID? I adjusted to Parkinson's. So adjusting the COVID was not that hard for me. Thank you for tuning in to the Motivation Station podcast. We'd like to thank the PMD Alliance for their support and distribution of our program. We've learned a little bit about Barry now. It's time to learn a little bit about Mona. Welcome back to the Motivation Station. We're here with Mona Elgvin. Did I say that correctly? You don't have to say it. I'm just Mona. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Cher and Madonna. Okay. So we're here to learn about Mona. 
And um, Mona, I hear that you're from a faraway place that's not the United States. Where is that? Yes, that's right. It's a magical it's place. Also, what is it? Yeah. And it's also not the capital of Sweden. It's actually its own country, Norway. And the capital of Norway is Oslo, and that's where I live. Did I say that at some point, that you were in Sweden? No, but it's a, it's very common for oh, okay. Americans to think that it's in Sweden. I was going to say, I was like, wait a minute, why is she coming at me like this as soon as we start the yeah. podcast? I'm I'm just trying to introduce you. Sweden, yeah. Norway. No, I get it, though. I'm from yeah. Norway. Our education system here in the States is not the best. So geography is not on the tops of most teachers' lists to nail down with their students. It's usually just attendance. <laughs> Basic attendance is what we shoot for here in the U.S. And then they pack us full of propaganda. Just my own opinion, but we'll move on from there. So we've got uh, two guests to host with me. Uh, we've got Nick and we've got Corinne. So we've got two uh, two different accents to um, help conflict our listeners even more. So we've got a Norwegian accent. We've got a Southern United States accent. Uh, I've got my Midwestern going. And Corinne, where the heck are you from? Some island out in the middle of nowhere. I'm in the middle of nowhere. Got the best accent. Yeah, she's a newfie. She's from up in Canada, but way apart on her own out in the middle of the Atlantic. She's a Newfoundlander, right? Or Newfound, did I say it right? There's a particular. You just got to get on a boat and take an eight hour ferry ride. (laughs) A three hour tour. All right. So we've got some questions for Mona here. Um, we, we just got done interviewing Barry, which he was a really interesting interview. Um, I don't know if you know Barry, but he was the writer of many comedies, um, including the Nutty Professor series, Coming to America. And um, he was Eddie Murphy's writer on Saturday Night Live for years. Uh, and after he was diagnosed with Parkinson's, this guy won an Emmy for screenwriting. So that's who we're pairing you up with. So you better bring it, Mona. So tell us a little oh bit about yourself. <laughs> no pressure at all. I'm starstruck. Yeah, me too. That's like, Coming to America is my favorite movie. Yeah, it's your favorite uh, hobby too. You come here often, don't you? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you could do it more. Wow, okay. Sorry, I, I was just, you, you got me at the coming to america so now i was thinking about all those lines that i know from that movie and yeah this guy wrote so those that's that's who we're pairing I you up you, but yeah i am so honored wow okay i'll try to concentrate what did you say so i just want to know a little bit about you we know that you're from norway it's not sweden the capital uh is oslo and that's where you're from can you mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about your life um we understand since you're here course you have parkinson's disease and just knowing a little bit about you i'll help our listeners skip ahead a little bit um you 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 work in kind of a high-paced job and um you landed that job which is your dream job shortly after your diagnosis which was at what age um yeah so actually i landed the job first and then i got diagnosed right after so i was 37 and then i turned 38 so just right about four years ago so what do you do Um, I'm an executive assistant to a hotel owner who owns the biggest hotel chain in the Nordics, or one of the biggest, I'm not sure. We have 200 and something hotels, 18,000 employees, 
And um, so the owner is a quite famous businessman in, in the Nordics. I mean, he's from Norway, but he's also quite famous in Sweden because of his leadership style and his, um, yeah, he's just a popular guy. So you must travel. Uh, and, uh, he travels a lot. Um, I don't. I don't have time. No. So I manage his, um, manage his life, basically. And um, yeah, I was an executive assistant before that and to um, um, CEO of an IT company. And then I was recruited to this job, which is like when I heard the name, I was very um, proud to be. I mean, they called me. I didn't apply for it. They called me. So, and that was just about the time when I was being diagnosed. And so I was going for the DAT scan on on the 11th of September and then meeting him on the 13th. So it's like parallel. Everything was happening at the same time. So I was in this room, actually, for my interview with him. Which, where are you? Uh, sorry? Where are you, just for our listeners so they know? Oh, sorry. I'm in my office or I'm in a meeting room at the office Okay. because cool. I thought this was a good place to do it, even though I'm sort of looking up at the sky for that camera. It looks like so you're on the, I, set, the set of The Wizard of Oz or something. Yeah, but I was actually in this room uh, for the interview and that was the first time I met him um, in person. And they put me in here uh, in one of these high chairs. And I didn't know which one to sit in. So I sat down and I was shaking. My hands were shaking. And um, at that time, I didn't know that I had Parkinson's, but I knew that something was wrong with me. But I thought, like, this is, you know, an opportunity of a lifetime to, to get this job or even just go to this interview. So I just have to deal with that. So I just, I put my hands on, under my, or under the table and sat on them. The Motivation Station. Thank you for tuning in. Now, it's time to learn a little bit more about our friend Barry Blostein. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, Kim. It ha I mentioned her. She has a lot of uh, similarities as far as you play ping pong and she's involved in pickleball and, uh, you know, it's a racket sport. And I see that she's got a question, so I wanted to turn it over to her. Hi, Barry. Nice to meet you. I play a little ping pong too, but it's, you know, basement ping pong with my family. So probably not quite at the same level. <laughs> Still fun though and, and good for us to move around whether whether we're good or bad at it, right? Yeah, right. Uh, you said, you mentioned that adjusting to COVID wasn't a big deal because you had to adjust to Parkinson's. Can you talk about that adjustment a little bit? I imagine you used humor as a strategy to get through it or, or to deal with it. Yeah, I use humor to get through everything. Yeah, me too. It's, it's good and bad. Um, <laughs> Why is that? Why is it good and bad, Barry? Well, it's 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 good because it it, it gives you a way of dealing with it. And but sometimes you use humor, uh, and you you use you, you I use humor to um, not deal with stuff. I get you. You know, I use it as, as a defense mechanism. Yeah, as a cover-up. Um, mm -hmm. cover, yeah. What was the question again? Sorry. So how did you adjust when, when you got your diagnosis? Can you talk about that that process? Was it oh, something yeah. that you accepted right away? Did you struggle with that? 
No, I I got it, and I I remember I, I uh, my mom who was dying, who was uh, said you, you got to go to a doctor because you this you're shuffling too much your feet and and uh, you got to promise me you go to see a doctor, and she, she died, and about three weeks later I went to the doctor. And, you know, they have the, the exam where you, they, you do this and, you know, you know, all the stuff. And he says, you have Parkinson's. And uh, I was like, oh, wow, well, everybody gets something. So I guess I, I got Parkinson's. I remember it was at four o'clock. And I remember I, I had to teach that night at seven o'clock. The week before in the class, I told the students, I said, I'm going to the doctor next week. I think I might have Parkinson's. And one girl started crying. She goes, my dad has Parkinson's. Don't make jokes about it. I'm sorry. I didn't know your dad had Parkinson's. I, before the class, I, I took her aside and I said, I've just found out I have Parkinson's. I do have Parkinson's. And I'd like to talk about it if, if, you not, if you're not offended by it. And she said, no, you can talk about it. And I told the class. And when I drove home, three of the students had sent me articles about how to deal with Parkinson's and diet and food, and and they were so supportive. I realized I could make it. That's amazing. It is amazing. There are so many people who get the diagnosis and won't tell anyone for a fairly long period of time. And three hours later, you were sharing it with the class. And what I love about that is that you were considered enough to pull that student aside and make sure that they were okay with it before you did that. that that's amazing. Well, I tell everybody, you know. Yeah, I, I think all of us find that at some point, it's a heck of a lot easier for us to deal with it if we're not also trying to hide it while we're dealing with it. For you to be able to do that right up front is great. Nothing took that, me about a year to get there. Oh, really? Yeah. It's so, something to be ashamed of because it's not something if, if I if I had a heart attack, I would say maybe I should have eaten better. If I got cancer, maybe I shouldn't have smoked. We did nothing to get Parkinson's. It's just the luck of the draw. You know, everybody gets something and and we we we're, we're the ones who got Parkinson's. Uh, so uh, dealing with Parkinson's obviously is a challenge, but I often think that challenges bring, they're like blessings in disguise. Always there's a silver lining. And thanks to that, I've met so many awesome people and I've changed my way of, of living. And sorry, I got a little. I find uh, I've become a kinder person. Yeah. Yeah. So like, for instance, I was saying that I met so many awesome people, changed my my lifestyle, um, just expanded my mind, just many things, and you became a kinder person. But there is some things that we don't often think about or that are not so obvious, but if we just think about it a little longer or a little harder, we see that there is actually more good things that it brings, but we choose to focus on the bad things. So I wanted to ask you, what, what would be those, those good things that it brought you? Great question. That's a good question. Brought me closer to people. Wow, that's Even, surprising. It's, I'm very open about it. In the last year, it, my Parkinson's has gotten much worse. For the first six years, you couldn't tell I had Parkinson's. 
or it would be hard to tell. But I was very open about it with people. And, and when you open up to people, most people will open up to you. Yeah, and, true. And friendships become stronger. And there are people who don't want to be around you that much because they, they think they might catch you. <laughs> Not contagious. <laughs> All right. I, I just, I, you realize the importance of, of friendships. Yeah, indeed. That work is not that important. You realize your priorities, right? What's right. really important? You know, I, 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 I have a wonderful support system. I, I married a wonderful woman. I was going out with her for about two years before I was diagnosed with Parkinson's. And after I was diagnosed, I had to speech i talked to her and i said you know you didn't sign up for this so if you want to uh end the relationship uh, i understand and she said no i'm, I'm in this and i i said thank god because i was going apart if she said no i'm leaving and she's been she's been a great partner in this. that's beautiful i'm so happy for you that you have a person to support you and be with you you're lucky i don't know how i i, I would do this alone it's hard. Yeah. Motivation would like to thank our Brain Blast team sponsors. Label Daddy of Las Vegas, Nevada. High quality labels for any occasion. And the Kurt Gibson Foundation of Michigan. Together, we can achieve more. Thank you for tuning in to the Motivation Station. Now, back to Mona. I should back up and let people know. I, I mentioned that um, Barry was a member of our Motivation Foundation group, and so is Mona. Um, she's actually one of our kind of higher functioning parkies, if you want to call us that. Um, <laughs> and we, uh. we, we brought you on here to talk about you because you're an interesting person. You've got an interesting history, um, and you have a very good approach to how you deal with your own Parkinson's. Um, but more than that, you're kind of one of our leading characters within motivation. So I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your experience within motivation. Now that Darby showed up, we can have that conversation. Tell us a little bit about your symptoms. Um, once you were diagnosed, uh, and especially with the stress that came with this new job, how did your symptoms present and how have they progressed up to this point? Okay, so um, I don't know exactly when they started. A lot of people have asked me that. And it's hard to know because at first they were so you know, like small, and I didn't think there were, there were anything serious. So I think, but let's say around, I think at the time of my last pregnancy, which was my daughter was born in 2015, I had like terrible restless legs during pregnancy, but I thought that was just pregnancy. And then I lost my sense of smell, which I also thought, I mean, anything can happen when you're pregnant. So anything weird that happens, you think it's pregnancy. But I think maybe that's sort of when it started. And then I started. Did you uh, did did you develop any odd tastes? Like, did you want pickled ice cream or anything like that? No, I don't think I can blame that. I mean, I wanted a lot of ice cream, but I. I <laughs> You're just weird. Just anyways, ice cream. Yeah, I just wanted to eat. So, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't chewing on nails or chalk or anything. But um, so I just thought, you know, at first it was something to do with pregnancy, but then I lost like a lot of weight without going on a diet which was great I mean I was super happy but I didn't feel like I deserved it because I hadn't done anything so um uh sorry I just got a 
on my phone that I had to take my pill and I have to press that I took it because otherwise I'll forget and I'll get confused. It's okay. okay. That's, Sorry. that's a great, that's a great interjection into the show. We, yeah. we like to keep it real here. So yeah, med time. Just, yeah med time. And To learn more about our group and our training, visit motivationfoundation.org. Again, motivationfoundation.org. Make sure to follow us so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. Now, questions from our peer-based community. Take it away, Ned. So, uh, Barry, it's good to see you again. Seeing you. Well, one question came from uh, Mike Q, and he asked if you feel as you get a uh, are as good a workout in your Zoom classes as you got when you were face to face in the gym. Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much is good workout. Do Do you find you have to do uh, approach exercise any differently with Zoom so that you ensure you're getting as strong a workout? No, I, I hate working out. So I don't like working out on Zoom or in person. And when I was in person, I would, I would, uh, uh, the boxing instructor, I would, uh, I would just engage her in conversation to delay the class. Yeah, I, I, I happen to be a rock steady coach. We have people who do that all the time. We, we tend to joke around with them that all they want to do is distract us from uh, doing the exercise. So I, I know your profile. <laughs> I, can, I can step in here as, uh, as Barry's virtual trainer and let you know that he, he does put in a vigorous exercise. He puts in a good hour's worth of work. And he'll throw in a joke here and there, which makes him a very interesting part of the group. But he does. He puts in the effort on Zoom. I don't know how much more effort you could put into uh, an in-person setting than what he's doing virtually. He 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 gets a, a sweat worked up. Maybe a question, Barry, about uh, your career from a writing perspective. Has Parkinson's um, given you any challenges from a creative perspective and or writing or teaching? Well, I'm happy to say that I wrote Coming to America 2 when I had Parkinson's. And I, I wrote, uh, I was came back to uh, Saturday Night Live as a guest writer and won an Emmy. And I wow. That's huge. That's a huge accomplishment. I don't think yeah. many people out there really know that you have done that. That's something that I'm glad that we get an opportunity to spread out there. Repeat yeah. that, Barry. Say it again. You won an Emmy while you had Parkinson's disease. Right. That's awesome. The Motivation Station. Teaching is, uh, is I tell the students the first day of class, I tell them I have Parkinson's. You should know that. And uh, so if my voice gets low, if I shake a little, those are tremors. And um, that's, part, that's part of Parkinson's. If my voice gets low, that's part of Parkinson's. Just tell me to raise my voice. But if I say anything mean to you, that's not Parkinson's. That's exactly how I feel. <laughs> and uh, and uh, they laugh. And, they, and then because I want to make them comfortable with it. This past year, I, I found it. I find it difficult to type on a computer. It's just it's, I hit the wrong keys all the time. Yeah. 
and my handwriting, which was always terrible. Even now I can't read it. The writing is so small. So I have a teaching assistant, a student, and I'll just whisper to her, write, uh, uh, after I read someone's script, just write what I say, you know, because I, I can't type it. Have, have any of your students gone on to write something maybe we've heard of? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. One student is a, is a TV writer. That's great. How does that make you feel uh, now that you've established yourself as a writer within the industry and now you're a professor, so you get to live on in the legacy, you know, being that of other people's productions now? Oh, yeah, it feels great. I mean, I, I remember uh, when they announced that Coming to America 2, was, they were going to shoot it. And I was I was happy and I was excited, but I, I know that only misery is in, in front of me. Because this, this when you're making a movie, there's ups and downs and all that. And in the same day, there was a student who had been struggling who I thought was very talented, but she just wasn't getting it. And that day I I read her new script and it, it like she suddenly, it all came together for her. And I was more excited about that than I was about getting the movie made. That's, uh, it, it feels that way as a Parkinson's coach sometimes. You know, I, I make inroads into my own symptoms, but I find that I get more um, of a reward from seeing a benefit in those that I train. It's it's an interesting dynamic. Do you find that it actually helps your symptoms a little bit to have those breakthroughs in class? Uh, you get a little dopamine hit off it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, rush from it. It was interesting. We had uh, Gavin Mogan on recently, and he takes that to the extreme. He's got a, a wholly different brain than most people, to where he gets an instantaneous dopamine hit to the point where his symptoms basically become non-existent for a short period of time. So it's interesting. I think a lot of people experience that. And Kim, it looked like you had something brewing on your mind. Do you ever experience those moments? I do. I wish they were. I wish it could last longer. It, it's like a little shot that has a very short shelf life. <laughs> so if, if we could find a way to expand that, that would be great. But when it happens, yes, it's it's just something we hang on to, right? And, and appreciate at the moment. But uh, one of the things that I'm appreciating as I listen to you, Barry, is I hear so many people say, I haven't done that since my diagnosis, whatever that might be. Play a sport teach a class, they, the diagnosis to them is the signal that this is the end of that period of their life. It sounds like you've done the opposite. You've, you've almost embraced all of the things that you've done and continued to move forward with them. And you've talked about how you've adapted uh, as difficulties come up that might hamper you from doing that, but you haven't let it stop you. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you see going forward for yourself? Well, I I'm I'm about to get uh, the DBS, so um, I'm uh, looking forward. I have my date now of surgery, and now so now I'm a little worried about it. Now I'm going. I I had it six months ago, and and that's great. I hope it goes well for you. It certainly has been a big improvement for me. So what's your date? Um, May thirty first. Oh, wow. Right, that's really close. Yeah. Now, let's check back in with Mona and see if she's got that med situation figured out. Where was that? What were we talking about? 
Oh man, you're, you're easily distracted too. <laughs> no, um, yeah, my symptoms. So um, it started with my left hand feeling weird and um, it took a while before I thought of it as anything else than just like, I, I thought maybe I'd been using my phone too much. Like my thumb was feeling weird. So it took a while before I went to see a doctor, maybe like a year. And by then I had also the same feeling in my toe. And that's when I started thinking this, this is not like, cause I don't use my phone that much with my toes. So I thought it must be something else. And then I went to see the doctor and he said, well, you're shaking. And I hadn't noticed myself. I didn't know I was shaking. And then he, he said he wanted to send me to a neurologist and, and I thought, okay. So I went home and I started Googling ne neurological stuff. That's not a good idea because there's, there's nothing on there you want. No, you've got cancer. Congratulations. Yeah, so I was like, uh, I don't know. And then I had to wait, I think, about six months before I got the appointment. And by then, I Googled enough to know that I had Parkinson's. But, of course, the, the neurologist didn't agree. So he just laughed at me and said, stop reading on the Internet and yeah, start doing yoga or something. That's a, unfortunately a common experience for a women, especially uh, with yeah. Parkinson's disease. And I think I just said, especially, <laughs> yeah, Woo! especially, uh, I, I have a question for you and Corinne, I hope you can chime in on this because I know um, it's, it's a tough situation in Newfoundland. Uh, I have to say it right because she ragged on me for saying it wrong one time. Um, no, that wasn't me. It was a friend of yours, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, you got to get it right or those newfies will attack. They're, they're like <laughs> ravenous wolves of the wilds of Canada. Anyways, <laughs> how's your experience been as a young woman with, uh, with young onset? And how do you think that differs from the experience that most men have with this disease? And then I actually do remember the question that I had. I'm going to hang on to it, though, and impress you guys. Okay, so uh, I don't know how it is for women, but my experience is not, I don't think it's based on being a woman, but it's probably more based on being young, um, or I don't know. Well, maybe one, one part of it is being a woman, because I got like two doctors looking at me like, oh, sweetheart, kind of like, are you nervous? Are you, are you stressed? Uh, you know, like, are you a hypochondriac kind of thing? Um, two, two of them did that. Yeah, that felt kind of like patronizing. I don't know. Yeah, that's common. So, it's common for, yeah. for both men and women. But for some reason, I, I don't know why, it, it seems to be more common for women to experience that. And I think that it is kind of like a, a societal trend of men in power patronizing women. It's unfortunate. Yeah, but one of, the, one of the neurologists who did that to me was actually a woman. So Ooh, swings well, that was my, but she was Me the too, one, Mona. yeah, but she had I, to eat her words because she was the one who had to diagnose me. So, so my question, um, was how, how long did it take the one that I forgot? And i remember how long did it take for you to actually see a neurologist? Is that something that you get into pretty quickly in your country? Cause I know Corinne, it takes you guys a long time out on that Island way in the middle of the Atlantic to, to get to see it in MDS. As, I think it's seven years now. What? Seven years yeah. before you get a chance to actually see a movement disorder specialist. 
Uh, no, we don't have we have we don't have movement disorder specialists anywhere close. A neurologist, yeah. seven years. Wow. So how is it over there in uh, Oslo? No, I mean we have a very good healthcare system. So I think I think it took I said six months, but I don't know if it was even that long. Maybe it was just like two. And I mean I could get it quicker if I paid for it, but. Um, yeah, it's not a long. I mean, no, you could get it tomorrow if you, you know, if someone really believes that you need it. Oh wow, yeah, it was uh, it was six months here in the states for myself. I think that's yeah. common. Yeah, that was. I mean, that was fine, and I wasn't in any hurry because I wasn't suffering. I just had some weird things going on, so I just wanted to figure out what it was. I mean, I wasn't. It was nothing urgent. I thought, and it's not because it's, it's the slowest. I mean, there's nothing we can do about it. It's not very urgent at all, but it's nice to know. It feels urgent, though. It feels really urgent when you're going through the diagnosis phase. And then shortly after the diagnosis, before acceptance really hits you and you know more about the disease, it feels really urgent. Yeah, but I did that in the reverse order because I had already figured it out myself. Yeah. And so then I got to the neurologist and he said that he laughed at me and he's like, oh, right. So you think you have, before I said it even, you know, he, he said, oh, have, you're one of those. Have you been reading on the internet? And I said, well, yeah. And then he said, oh, so you have Parkinson's and ALS and MS? And I said, yeah, definitely one of them. I think it's Parkinson's. And he said, no, you don't have that. You don't have any of those. And I can guarantee it, he said. And I said, how can you be so sure? And I said, oh, I've, I've been doing this for like, 40 years, I could see it like as soon as you walked in my office that you don't have that. And then I said, well, what if I'm at like a very early stage before it it becomes visible? And he said, no, no, you don't have that. You have essential tremor. And then I said, but I don't even have tremor because I don't really have tremor. And he said, well, yeah, you do. Okay. And um, then he said, but don't worry, I'll I'll do like an MRI of your brain to check. And um, I only later found out that. you can't see Parkinson's on an MRI. So he did that sort of just to shut me up. So he said, the MRI, MRI came back and he said, look, see, I told you there's nothing wrong with your brain. So I, I suggest you stop reading on the internet and take these beta blockers and start doing yoga or something. I feel like yeah. it's a common experience with folks to, um, and I think you have a, a, an important thing to say about patient advocacy. We, we need to, research on our own and we need to speak up on what we're noticing yeah. for ourselves because the the best observation that we that we can find is our own observation we only see these yeah. physicians for you know sometimes a half hour at a time and who yeah. knows where at and our symptoms we are at that point are we on are we off are, are we medicated yeah or, or yeah or are we even like at the very beginning where you don't really have that many visible symptoms If you'd like more information on Motivation Foundation, visit motivationfoundation.org. Again, motivationfoundation.org. We're a peer-based community of growth-minded individuals who push each other to be our very best and overcome the challenge of living with Parkinson's. If you realize you need to work your brain as much as your body, we'd love to talk to you. Motivationfoundation.org. But now, back to the show. 
Ned, your your symptoms changed a bit from before to after, and you've been putting in a lot of work recently on on improving, um, which you've done an incredible job at. I understand, right? Yeah, um, I developed a left side tremor for the first time ever, and uh, not terribly uh, severe, but I had none on on the left side before, and uh, I've had some gait. Uh, issues uh, with dyskinesia that may have been there before, but they became very highlighted because everything else pretty much stopped. And uh, so working with Darby, uh, we've identified some strategies to uh, to help that. And uh, I'm happy to say I'm making progress. I love that. That's, uh, that's one thing that motivation um, is focused on is post-DBS. Um, we have a lot of modalities that help with relearning the new symptoms that come after DBS. Of course, we're going for symptom reduction overall, but ultimately most people experience a change to where it's kind of a different Parkinson's disease post-DBS. A better set of symptoms hopefully is what we're going for, but there's a learning curve that comes with it, Barry, I guess is why I was bringing this part of the conversation up. Um, I'm sure your doctors Mm -hmm. will talk to you about that, but it's a good conversation to have in this platform where other folks who might be considering it too get a little bit of information that maybe they weren't filled in on. Um, we've got so many folks now that um, have had DBS, a couple that are considering it. Um, Mike Q, uh, he, we always talk about him. He's the godfather of all podcasts related to Parkinson's in my world. Um, he, he's got a lot of knowledge. So anybody out there who's listening and has questions on DBS, we are definitely not the foremost knowledge resource on the topic, but we do have a lot of subjective experience to share with you. If you'd like to go to motivationfoundation.org and check us out, please do um, and send Darby a message. She's got a lot of resources for you. Let's check back in with Mona. So the worst advice that I've ever been given was to stop reading or don't read on the internet. As I was being diagnosed, like my own doctor told me that like before I went to the neurologist and if I if I hadn't I wouldn't have known what I knew when the day I got the sort of final diagnosis because that's when I I wasn't scared because I'd seen like um Allison Copperwine's videos and um other young people you know like seeming like they were doing okay and I don't think like if I hadn't seen those videos and read about those people, I would have thought that it was, you know, I would have had that image of the old man hunched over and that would have been much more scary. So by the time I got the diagnosis, I was actually like sort of celebrating because I was just so happy that I was, that it wasn't ALS, which I'm yeah. sure a lot of people have had that same feeling. Yeah. So that, I was just really, that you unknown. know, I was right at the end and it's, and I'm not dying. Yeah, that unknown feeling that you go through before diagnosis is very, it's traumatic, really, because yeah. you, you go through the feelings of having each of those things when you start reading up on them. And yeah. it's a blessing and a curse having so much information at our fingertips. Um, yeah. it's, not, it's not often that you and I and other folks like us get to run into a person like Darby who can explain this disease to us in detail and give us a really clear and thorough understanding. So most people have to turn to the internet and there is a lot of information out there. Like most times you'll run into things like you'll die within six to 10 years of getting diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Uh, let me tell yeah. you folks, you can live a little yeah. bit longer than that if you put some effort yeah. into it for sure. 
No, you have to know what to look for. I was only looking for hope when I was researching. I was looking for like, if I have Parkinson's symptoms, but it's not Parkinson's, what can it be? And, you know, like I was looking for answers. So I was just looking for good stuff. I didn't want to read. I didn't want to know that I was dying or that I was going to be in a wheelchair or whatever. So I, I didn't look at those things. I just looked at good stuff. So when I got the letter, I was actually like, I wasn't shocked or sad or anything. I was just like, oh, yeah, that's, that's what I said the whole time. I, I knew this. And then at least I went, now I know. And then I can get the meds. Of course, it wasn't it wasn't all good, but I was I wasn't shocked at least. And I didn't think that I was going to be like, you know, like those pictures that you see of those old shaking men. I also think that so many people don't realize that there's a difference between early onset Parkinson's disease and late onset. And a lot mm-hmm. of the literature out there, if you are, you know, just reading throughout the internet, doesn't s- specify these differences. And that yeah. can be scary because a lot of, you know, the literature says that within 10 years, there's a 50% chance that you will develop dementia, but that's for later onset diagnosis that doesn't apply to the earlier onset subtypes. Mm-hmm. And I've had people approach me with earlier onset that are terrified. And yeah. hopefully now I think the movement disorder society task force has changed the, um, you know, they, they, they have a task force specifically on young onset. They're now calling it early onset. And hopefully in the literature, it will be, you know, differentiated between the two so that people that are younger can get more useful and more hopeful information at their fingertips. From all of us at the Motivation Station, thank you so much for tuning in. I think that becomes the overarching theme of our podcast with just about every conversation is uh, this disease sucks big time, but there's so much in the way of fringe benefits that comes from it that it becomes tolerable to the point where you accept it. Hopefully, if people can get to this point, that's what we're trying to push for. You can accept it and have a beautiful life with Parkinson's disease. And I I think that you've been open and honest with what's going on with you. And in comedy, I think that that's something that's kind of shied away from. We we have instances such as uh, Robin Williams, um, who maybe he didn't quite know what was going on with himself, but there has to be a, a certain degree of depression that was tucked away behind that comedy. And it's interesting that you, you you take a completely different approach to that, where you've been open, honest, and have really embraced social networks around you to kind of help you through this. So can you can you kind of touch on that different dynamic? And and how did how did that hit the the community um, there in LA when that happened with Robin? Well, I was in I was in Moscow. Uh, I I helped develop a show in Russia in Russia. And I was in Moscow and it happened when he uh, killed himself. Um, I think people were shocked. People around the world were shocked. And he said, my son said, I, I thought Robin Williams was a person that would live forever. And he'd, he'd always be around. We all felt that way. And it was, it was, it was tragic. It was that the disease had gotten the better of him. Now, there's there's many people out there who who may have their Parkinson's tucked away kind of similarly. And and a lot of people are probably using cover ups, much like he was using comedy, whereas you have not done that. You've benefited from being an open person. Can you can you speak on that a little bit and, and maybe give our listeners some last advice 
um, what being an open person and utilizing the social networks that you have, even if it's a, a classroom of students, how important is that to embrace as a person with Parkinson's? I think it's very important. By making it public, you're you're embracing it. You're you're telling people, this is this is part of who I am. I'm not defined by my disease. I'm still the same person. I just shake a little. My mind's working as, you know, I, I play a game with myself. Is it Parkinson's or is it getting older? I I think it's important that for me it was important to be to, to tell people about it. I remember I told my manager and agent, and they were going, Well, you had a great career, and and I'm going, it's Yikes. not over. I go, it's not over. Yeah. So you had an interesting dynamic between people who were above you and people that were below you. The people above you assumed, oh, geez, he's not going to perform as well as he would have. Whereas the people below you, your students, you had three of them on your way home that called you. Tell me the the difference in that support that you got. And these are this is for the, the caretakers out there that, that um, are listening. There's different ways to talk to people and there's different ways to offer support. <laughs> How, how, how did that affect you um, when you, what was the very first thought that you had after you received those three calls on your way home? That I'm not alone. That I, there are people who, who help me and support me and that they, that three students reached out to me and sent me articles. This was seven years ago and I'm still in touch with the students. Let's hear what Mona has to say about her training with motivation. So is that something that you practice normally with uh, with Darby and her groups? Or what, what is this pie talk? I'm sure that our listeners have heard a lot about it. And you seem like a good person to give an explanation. So I'll break it down right now with you. Okay. Okay. So um, I was, before I came here, or before I came on here, I was at a dinner at some friends. Because even though it's afternoon for you guys, it's like 10 p.m. my time. And so I just came from a dinner and I was uh, the guy um, who was um, who I was with. He said, he said to me, um, so Mona, does Parkinson's make you really smart? And I laughed and I said, no, it makes you really dumb. Um, what do you mean? And he said, well, I heard that you learned all these digits of pi. How, how did you do that? I don't even know where my keys are, he said. And I said, well. No, I did that because I don't want to become, you know, I, I want to to keep my brain healthy. So I'm practicing memory to not lose my memory. And he said, oh, and he thought like Parkinson's people get like extra smart because because he, he thought he would never be able to do that. And I said, well, you can also do that. So I've, I've learned um, I, I was going to say 440 digits of pi. But I don't think if you ask me right now, I would probably stop around 400. So let's say 400, which Ooh. is still a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that's extremely impressive. Um, yeah. What is what is it that you how on earth do you memorize 400 digits of pi? Well, I didn't think I could do it either, but um, Darby taught me. Um, when when I you introduced me to Darby and you said we have this cool thing going on and you should try it and um i spoke to darby and the first time we talked she taught me the i think it was 40 41 digit it's a story so she told me a story where some of the words in the story 
sound like the numbers or look like the numbers. And it's a story that she's made up with with some other folks. And it's um it's a very strange and absurd, bizarre story. I don't know if that's like if it's supposed to be that that that's the technique, but at least for me it's the the story is so bizarre that I don't forget the story and the numbers are connected to the story. So then I memorize the numbers. But when I when I say them really fast, I think I only remember the numbers because I wouldn't be able to tell the story that fast. So I think it's a way of memorizing the numbers, but then once you know them, you know them. At least that's how it is for me. So yeah. So did that explain it? The story yeah. that makes you helps you remember the numbers and then you can remember remember a lot of numbers. And it has nothing to do with pi, but we're doing that as an exercise to train our memory while doing movements for dual tasking for Parkinson's. Do you feel like you're really like good? Do you feel like really good? Yeah, she's excellent. Oh, yeah. So so is Corinne. No, but Mona's really good at the numbers and the movements together. Yeah. She's, yeah, she's yeah. very fluent. That's where we... we... Have, uh, Go ahead, yeah. Mona. I'm sorry. No, I was going to just say to Corinne, that, that's not how I feel. Like I feel like I'm really bad at doing... Like when I get instructions, I can do the numbers really good and maybe I can do the movements too. But when I have to do like both together or even like if I have to change from one to another, I feel like I'm the slowest one in the group to do to do those like transitions. And I interject because Mona, I think you had a really powerful aha moment a couple weeks ago when <laughs> rhetorically things started to click for, for controlling your upper and lower body and that, and developing, I think a higher level of coordination. You know, when we do a dual task, there's a prioritization. We're either going to prioritize the cognitive portion, or we're going to prioritize the movement portion. And I think that the better that we can get individually and then integrate it together, we can develop these detentional strategies where it doesn't take as many resources. And tell tell us about what kind of clicked for you a couple of weeks ago where you started to feel more fluid with your movement, because there's been a noticeable trans transformation, I think, with how you've integrated the two um, recently. I don't know what clicked. Do you know what clicked? <laughs> because I'm not sure. <laughs> Well, I think what we were chatting about is that you, you started to move your attention to the posterior part of your body and you started to feel that pulling and you didn't just think about the martial arts techniques as a pushing, you started thinking about it as a pulling and that started. Yeah. To you mean with, with the boxing yes. moves? Yeah. So like I said before, I've been, I've been at the, the rock steady boxing thing and, you know, everybody says that, oh, you have to do the rock steady boxing and boxing 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 everybody talks about boxing and I and so I tried to do that I got the gloves and everything and I feel really cool when I wear them but I just never got into it I and I feel stupid when I'm there because like even these people that are much older than me and much worse uh with their Parkinson's they do better than me and I get confused with all the instructions and the one and two and and I always feel dumb when I'm there but then um so I thought like maybe boxing is just not my thing so I think maybe that too just made me not like really try hard enough but even when I tried I felt like I couldn't do it but I think it was just something you said like when you last time you instructed how we should do this I think it's just something I looked at you the way you did it you said something about like you have to pull your shoulder the other shoulder back and 
it, it was just something about the way you explained it that just made sense to me. And then I tried that. I remember like trying it with in the background and you said like, yes, that's the one. Then you watched me and I, I did it right. And, and from then I just, I think I just, yeah, it was, I guess that's what clicked. When, when it comes to martial arts, technique is everything. And having an instructor right. who is, uh, is well-rounded and being able to assess poor technique and then give good fixes on the fly is huge. Darby is excellent at that, especially when it comes to boxing. She's, uh, she's got a very good assessment set. And I, I've seen her make those types of changes in people over and over and over again. That's why motivation is growing like it is. Corinne raised her hand. And if Nick wasn't getting a furniture delivery currently, his hands would both be up as well. I think the biggest I think the biggest impact from my movement and numbers going together is I had to get out of my head and stop overthinking the movements. And when I did that, it seemed to become more because I think I was overthinking it. So I, I focused on just making the sound and then I got out of my head and then it just sort of flowed. It's like you've allowed your sound to command your body. And that's yes. led to greater invigoration of the movement, greater velocity it's noticeable too with you as well. And I think, you know, Nate does such a great job leading teams. And I think that's one of the really powerful things that we're doing is we're showing people in the early onset community that there is an opportunity to either stay involved with your current career for longer or to find new passions outside of what you, what you've done in your career and find your place in a leadership role within motivation, leading one of these teams. And I think, you know, Corinne, you've been really active. You've been coming to the Sunday sessions with, with Mona, and then you've been going to the label daddy sponsored sessions twice a week with Nate and doing some sessions um, for demos with professionals. So again, that consistency, that motivation and desire to learn and appreciating the education and exercise. It's not just about moving, but really understanding the moving so that motor learning can take place and so that there can be translation into everyday life and I think you've done a really good job at that as well yeah it's making a big impact hey thanks for sticking with us now questions from the group You're going to hear some questions from our motivation group. These are people who are interested in being trainers or have a uh, an avenue of effect in the Parkinson's advocacy world. Um, we all come together weekly and discuss ways that we can positively affect our community. And we decided to make a podcast out of that. So here we are, folks. Barry Blostein, we've got you cornered. And here you are for questioning Anybody has one, just raise your hand. Ned Newhouse is up first. Fire away. Well, I'll ask the question everybody's dying to ask. What's the craziest story from your SNL days that you can share with the public? I remember one day uh, we were up late with Eddie Murphy and uh, Joe Piscopo was on the show. And uh, Eddie was practicing the kick and the wall vibrated and kicked it again, and we said, kick it again, and the wall vibrated, and this is kick it again, this is like four in the morning, and suddenly the wall, was a big hole in the wall, and the next day, uh, the producer came in, and uh, people from NBC came in and said, who did this, who did this, and we go, we don't know. We don't it wasn't know. me. It wasn't me, so uh, I remember that. <laughs> um, uh, what else happened on 
you know, every week was, every week was, it, it's a tough show to work on. It's someone, someone said, it's a cross between working in a summer camp and a concentration camp. I hear there's a lot of competition. Um, did you get along with the other writers well? Yeah, yeah. Come on, that's a safe answer. <laughs> there's a lot of competition. There is a lot of competition. Uh, we were fortunate that we got a lot of stuff on the air and we eventually became the head, head writers on the show. So do you still, uh, do you still talk with Eddie? Yeah. Yeah. I told him I have Parkinson's. Yeah. yeah. Did he make a joke about it? No, he was, he was like, you couldn't, you couldn't tell, you know, he was responsible for getting me on coming to America too. If the studio knew I had Parkinson's, I'm sure they would have fired me. That's sad. Is that something that's common in uh, Hollywood? Well, it was a common, it would be a combination of being, uh, being, uh, I'm 68 now. And I think I, I wrote that movie was like I wrote four years ago. So 64 years old, which in Hollywood is like being 120 years old. I got you. Um, I want to know, I want to know one thing. How on earth did you form the character um, of Eddie Murphy in Nutty Professor? Like what type of research went into that? Oh, that that was interesting. We went to uh, I think it was called the Lenora. It's it's a, a place where people with weight issues go, and we interviewed uh, people who weighed four or five hundred pounds. You talk, they talked to us about the the problems they go through, and and you were in, you're in a room with people who weigh four to five hundred pounds. And then someone who weighs 800 pounds comes in and you're going, oh, it's, it's huge. And uh, there was a scene originally, which was cut from the film for time, but there was a, uh, and, uh, a group that uh, the Sherman Club won to uh, talk about the problems of being overweight. I remember we, being in New York with Eddie and on 57th street and we would just look at people and go he should be he should be that fat no that's too skinny he should be that fat no he's too heavy and just looking at people going how how heavy should he be and we wanted to make sure that people with dealing with weight issues would like the movie yeah, I, I think that you guys did an excellent job of not um, stigmatizing the the weight and and actually making the movie a message about acceptance. And that's kind of where I wanted to lead the questioning is in that process of making the movie and talking to so many people and then forming this character that it, through the process of the movie ends up kind of discovering that he's okay in his skin, how he was before his transition. Um, how does that translate to Parkinson's disease and living in your own skin with this change that's brought about on us? I never thought of it, but it was, it's really the same, the same thing. You, you got to accept, you have to be comfortable with who you are and accept whatever, much like the character accepted that he was heavy and that's just part of who he is. But that doesn't, that doesn't have to be his definition of who you are. Parkinson's is a disease that it's something you have, but it isn't the definition of you. Yeah, that it, it played out in a couple of ways in your own life. Interesting how art becomes life, right? You're, you're, you've, you found that 
even though you maybe didn't expect your own significant other to accept how you had changed uh the professor found that his significant other could have cared less about his change too right love is love and we we find that a good partner can you know sometimes surprise us in that way right yeah there's a scene in the movie that i uh i remember uh asking from real life that i think the scene where he goes to uh a club with uh with jada pinkin and uh there's a comedian making fun of him and he can't escape and he's embarrassed and i think everybody has been in that situation in their life and uh and there are times when you have parkinson's when you're out in public and you're and you might be shaking a little and you feel embarrassed and you can't escape it and you just you just it just helps us say i have parkinson's and i and i use it I use it to get a better seat in the airlines. I'll go up to the clerk and I'll go, I have Parkinson's and uh, I'm in the back. And uh, if you can move me, I, I, I tremors and I'm comfortable with it, but it might make people around me uncomfortable. So when they go, oh, okay, we'll bump you up to business class. Or, there have to be... There have to be some benefits to having this condition, right? Right. right. You can use it to get out of doing anything. You can. Uh, with being so open, have you had any kind of wild responses from people? For example, I, I last summer was sitting in some bleachers watching a tournament and talking with someone, and I mentioned to her that I had Parkinson's, and she stopped and just broke into tears, like sobs. <laughs> <laughs> and she said she didn't even know why it wasn't because her dad had it or it, she just felt bad for me apparently <laughs> have you had any crazy reactions no not really uh I, but i've had people say um you know I, if i go to a stadium and it's a long walk i'll, I'll call them up and they'll have a, like a wheelchair for me and rather than feeling like oh i'm in a wheelchair i'm, I'm like this is great I don't have to. I don't have to wait online in the airport. I don't have to wait online. They, they put me through the disability people with other people with disabilities. That I'm like, I'm like, this is a this is a great advantage. Yeah, I I uh, I took my amigo to uh, Disney one time back when I was a little worse off, and I was embarrassed as I'll get out rolling up there. But after like three rides, I was like, screw this. This is the best thing ever. <laughs> get out of the way. I'm moving up. Um, yeah, I was, I kind of took advantage of it then. Hey, Corinne, I see that you've got the little hand up um, thing. And I'm surprised that we have not heard from Corinne yet. If you guys uh, don't know Corinne Snow, if you didn't hear the YOPN Network podcast, the biggest podcast as far as listeners goes of all time. Miss Corinne Snow cannot stop talking usually. What's your question? Go ahead. So Barry, I think you are awesome. You really made me smile. I have used the Parkinson's card so much. Right. I am young, but I got my child a hedgehog using that Parkinson's card. I think your positivity is amazing. And my question for you is, have you had many, because you're so positive, have you had many people reach out to you for advice and how do you deal with people that 
you find you can't help? Uh, sometimes when, when I was in training, when I was exercising in, class, in person, I'd reach out to people or people would reach out to me. And um, there's some people who are, who are just negative people who just look at the bad side of everything. And they're, without Parkinson's, they would still be negative. And it's just the way they are. So you, they're hard to deal with. So I, I just don't deal with them. I remember um, we were working on the gym and uh, the Parkinson group in, in a big boxing gym. And there were a couple of NBA players working out stretching and all that. And they came over to us and they said, you know, you inspire us. And I said, really? He says, we see how hard you work makes us want to work harder. And, they had, and it was, came a whole dialogue with him. And uh, I'm a big NBA fan, so it meant a lot to me. Um, but uh, people who are, who are negative about it, it's, they're, they're, a lot of them were negative about everything before. And you could only do so much for them. Um, got a question for you, Mr. Barry. You're a writer. What brought you to have the inspiration you do to write? And did that change once you got Parkinson's? Well, I, I got I, I got Parkinson's. I was a writer for 30, 40 years before I got Parkinson's. Right. I, I never really wanted to be a writer. I just wanted to be in show business. And I came out to Hollywood and they said, can you write? And I, I learned to say yes because I, I wrote stuff in college and I, and the bar in Hollywood is not all that high. And so I figured if these jerks can do it, I can do it. And, uh, and I just started writing and writing and you know, it was re I was rejected, rejected. And then you find someone who hires you and you, and then you do a good job and then word gets around and you get other jobs and then, you eventually got a big break, which for me was being hired on SNL. Yeah, so Mona, can you can you tell us about the creativity that has suddenly kind of come out of you um, since your diagnosis and some of the art that you've been producing? Sure, um, so um, I don't know if, I mean, there's several ways of looking at it. Um, and I know that it's probably the dopamine agonist that made me um, more creative, but I like to look at it more like I wasn't being myself because I had dopamine deficiency. So I refilled my dopamine and I got my creativity back. Maybe it was gone from since childhood, who knows? But I don't like to think of it as it, the meds that make you creative, but it's quite common for people with Parkinson's to start drawing or making art in some form, becoming more creative. And I think it's really, really cool whatever the reason is, it's just, it was a lot of fun. It felt like a sort of a, a bonus. I, I made a Instagram page and a blog called the side effect because it's, it is a side effect. I don't know of what of the medicine or the disease or just, you know, having life turned upside down, but I like to think of it as like a bonus side effect, something fun that happens when something shitty happens. So after I started meds, I sort of became a lot more energetic. I, I was probably 
apathetic before. And then all of a sudden I had all this, you know, like life back into me and I didn't want to go to bed. I wanted to draw and knit and I... I started doing a lot of things that I'd never tried before. So I I drew a picture of my daughter, which I have never drawn like a pencil portrait before. Not one that looks like a person anyway. Like, and when people see it, they say, well, you must have drawn before because this is really good. But honestly, I, I didn't know how to draw at all. But I think I just got that focus and I realized that anybody can draw because it's just it's just about looking close and copying what you see. So I was... I was looking at a picture and I was trying to draw, make it look like her. And I spent like a few days on it and a whole eraser. So it was a mixture of like feeling creative and wanting to make something, but also having that focus that I hadn't had for a long time. And it lasted for maybe like the first year and a half. I I don't have it as much anymore, but in the beginning, I would sit up at night and draw for hours or knit I started knitting like I made a sweater I didn't even know how to knit I just looked on YouTube I got all this yarn and now I have all these boxes full of yarn and I'm not knitting so I call it like excessive hobbyism I think that's something I think that's something a lot of people with uh, Parkinson's experience uh, either due to medications or the progression of the disease Um, I'm not a doctor to specify but I think that um, the larger topic of what you're saying speaks probably to a lot of listeners because especially people who do well with this disease, it seems like they at some point find a reconnectedness to themselves, to their youth, to something that they really enjoyed. And and that seems to be a bridge to a better way of dealing with their life now with this disease. Would you find that that reconnectedness to something that you loved being art in your youth has helped you? But I didn't love it in my youth, uh, or I didn't know. I mean, so it was new to me. But but um, anyway, like it it made me. Um, I think it sort of makes you forget. Like once, like while you're doing it, whatever. It, I mean, it's good for your uh, motors, like fine motor skills. So I was, I was, I felt like I was doing something good. Like it was sort of exercise for my brain and my hands, but not as exhausting as all that other exercise I have to do. I sort of justified it to myself as like something that was good for me so that was one part of it and I I enjoyed it and I think before I was just scrolling a lot at night I would just sit and look at my phone I was too tired to do anything I didn't have any I didn't want to do anything and then all of a sudden I had this like urge to make stuff um and I think maybe also because I was diagnosed at the end of 2019 so going into the pandemic when we're all inside I was you know buying all these art supplies and trying to make like activities for the kids and funding a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, that made me creative too. And my daughter was upset because her Barbies didn't have a toilet. So I thought like, why don't we make one? And I made a Barbie toilet out of a a plastic bottle and I, with a glue gun and I cut out all these pieces and I made little tables and chairs and couches and yeah. Furniture for the dollhouse. That was fun. And um, that's the shit. Yeah. Darby, um, you've you've seen uh, Barry come from a, a guy who who struggled quite a bit um, with his movement, and we've we've made some inroads there. His posture, we still have to remind him a bit about, which I, I'm looking at him now and wanting to say, posture up, Barry. But what what do you have to say about this Barry character here? How, how do you feel as his main trainer? Well. First of all, I think that Barry's level of commitment and the joy that you bring in the sessions is just contagious. 
And that's very important that you show up consistently and regularly. Did you just and say it's, it's very important? It's very important. That I'm, I'm not that uh, quick to do it. See, so, we got jokes too there. <laughs> but, you know, I think, I think with Barry, a lot of what we have done is really empowering him to ask the right questions with his medical team. And, and, you know, he mentioned that you felt like this last year, your, your, your disease has kind of caught up and gotten a little, a little worse. And I think with the empowerment of asking those questions, it's led you to the decision to get DBS and to find the doctor and the, and, and the right team for you. And I think that, you know, for some people, that's a part of their journey and to have that empowerment and that, and that support with, with your peers and with the group through that process and, and learning those attentional strategies and prevented it like almost a, a way to prepare you post DBS, I think is going to be really impactful. That's something that I'm, I'm very happy that we are all part of, of your journey through this. You've been very helpful. I had a situation where I couldn't reach my doctor. We tried some medication and it wasn't working. And I was having a negative effect. And I, my doctor was who I, I was very close to, and we used to text each other. And for two months, I tried reaching him, and he didn't respond. And he was on a vacation, and I, I was I was falling apart mentally. And uh, I decided, even though this was a very esteemed, very well thought of doctor, that he wasn't the right one for me. And then I found one that uh, that. I, I think it answers the dang phone, right? <laughs> That's important. Communication with your uh, medical team is everything. When we have all these changes going on in this boutique disease, we need good communication. And as an MDS, it doesn't matter how skilled you are and how much you know. If you don't have good, you know, person to person skills, that doesn't do us any good, right? right. Which unfortunately he did to a certain amount of time, but doctors need vacations too, Barry. Come on, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> well, you're you're a very unique character, Barry. I think this is a good place to wrap it up, unless anybody has any more questions. Nick, go. So, like going back to the uh, the getting stuck, you know, the what happens next, writing that story, and that it's kind of like the whole Parkinson's thing. You know, like what happens next, you don't know, and you just got to kind of roll with it. You know? Yeah, it's 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 scary, but it's it. It makes life interesting. Yeah. Barry, if you had to uh, leave our guests with one thing, and I'm sorry to put you on the spot, and I'll elongate the question to give you time to think about it. If you had to leave our guests with one thing, what would it be, my friend? That Parkinson's shouldn't define you, who you are. It's, it's part of who you are, but it is not, it's not the whole definition of you, of who you are. Don't let it define you. Don't let it change the person that you are. Thank you once again for tuning in to the Motivation Station podcast. Be sure to follow us and visit motivationfoundation.org to join our peer-based community.